listening to Sorted Cinema, and we're back with a full-length episode for the first time in a minute uh, with a film that we've been itching to revisit for quite some time, and uh, we thought that the release of a new film in this franchise was as good a prompt as we were going to get, so uh, we're going to rewind to 1999 and talk about the Wachowskis' original The Matrix. dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real. What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Welcome to the real world. So you're here to save the world. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye-bye. My name is Simon Howell. Ricky D, also here. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. And uh, we are joined with, uh, you know, we, we haven't had a lot of guest hosts lately. We've been, we're we're going to try to do it more. And this week, guesting with us, Kent M. Wilhelm of uh, Tilt Magazine. Kent, how you doing? I am doing very well. I've been uh, waiting to speak with you guys about this for quite some time. So the fact that yeah. it's finally here, I'm stoked. Yeah, we've been trying to get this one on the books for uh, for a little while now. It's finally happening. I'm excited. Um, Ricky, you and I went back and forth on how to handle the Matrix series on this podcast a lot because I think we wanted to wait and see how we felt about the new one. I wanted a chance to watch the sequels for the first time ever, which I did over the holidays. Um, ultimately, for now, we've landed on... Uh, talking about the matrix 1999 the original flavor why is that 
I opted not to watch the sequels. I wanted to watch The Matrix and just remember my first time watching this opening night at the movie theater with like three people present because nobody saw this damn movie opening night and me walking out of the cinema and telling everyone this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. You need to watch it. So I just watched the first movie, the original movie, the movie we're going to talk about today, the quintessential movie of 1999, one of my favorite movies of all time. And I watched it three times this week. That's dedication. Yeah, I love it. I love this movie. I actually have a list of scenes, which I want to talk about throughout the podcast. I'm not going to talk about every single scene right now because I'm going to hug up the microphone. But what really surprised me watching this movie again, 20, what, two years later? And I've seen it plenty of times in between opening night and 2022. But I haven't seen this movie in maybe like eight years, maybe longer. I was shocked at how many iconic scenes there are within the first 45 minutes of the film. Mm -hmm. Scene after scene after scene after scene. Every single scene within the first 45 minutes of the film is iconic. This movie is groundbreaking. This movie is just incredible. It stands the test of time. And just the opening. Talk about making a great first impression the opening with Trinity sitting in the empty room and you get that line of dialogue where the cop says, I think we can handle one little girl. And Agent Smith says, your men are already dead. dead. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the chase and you get the leap from one rooftop to the next rooftop and you get that incredible low Dutch angle showing the Agent Smith looking up at the towering building. And then the whole entire chase sequence ends with the rush for the phone booth. I mean, that opening is incredible. Uh, 100%. And one of the sorry, reasons, oh no, sorry about that. One of the reasons, you know, uh, that I feel like they knew they had to pack, you know, so much energy and so much of what this movie was going to be in terms of the visual language action wise is you know, uh, the, the story with it is they shot those first, you know, scenes, those opening sequences, and they sent that to the studio and they said, this is what we've got so far. Can we have some more money? And they were like, absolutely. Absolutely. They were. Yeah. Oh, it took them I, three months I didn't to even film know it. that. Damn. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it took them it, three, fuck. three months to film it. And it took her half a year to actually prepare for the fight choreography Amazing. for one opening scene. Uh, yeah, people underrate, I guess, Carrie Ann Moss's role in making this all happen, eh? Damn. Um, so Kent, why did you want so badly to be in on this discussion? Uh, well, let's see. I mean, aside from this being, you know, sort of, a, as you guys were saying, this, this is, this movie is an epoch in, in filmmaking, but also just in, in Western culture as well, right? There is... Yeah. There is movie making and action movie making before the Matrix, and then there is movie movie making and action movie making after the Matrix. So much of the message and the themes, and the even the dialogue, obviously the the visuals from the Matrix has just completely permeated you know language in our culture, uh, for, you know for better or worse, you know these Indeed, days. Yeah. But um, you know it, it's just it's a movie that I. I don't think I actually saw in the theater because my sort of origin with this movie is that this was like one of the first like 
DVDs I got. And I feel like for a lot of people, this is like like a seminal like DVD movie, right? I got it before the DVDs even came in like the plastic cases. It was just a sort mm-hmm. of paper case with a plastic clasp. I remember yeah, it, it was so the black, the black plastic clasp. Mm-hmm. I, I remember its tactility very specifically. Absolutely. And I just remember reaching for that DVD constantly. And this was just one, you know, that I was late to the party on for, you know, one reason or another. And then I just could not get enough of it. I was such a, you know, a creepy computer nerdy kid back then. And obviously the 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 action sequence that sequences that resonated, you know, with and we'll talk about this more with everyone and them just sort of changing the language, as I said before, of action filmmaking, action cinema. It just it just hit so hard. And then there's all of the sequels and there's this whole world and, you know, I, world building now is not that big of a deal. It's kind of commonplace, but back then it was not so much. And so, yeah, this just really set in motion for me so much of me, you know, looking at films a certain way. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's The Matrix. I mean, that, 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 there's the short answer. It's The Matrix. That's why I wanted to talk about it so much. Um, I was on this rewatch. I was just really struck by how um every almost every single decision is good like they, there are so many things about how the world is built and how the characters are introduced and how the action set pieces are conceived and who they cast and you know there are so many you know there's a million decision points that go into making a movie and a million more that go into making a movie like this and so many things had to go right for them to have pulled this off and to my mind, and I know that the I know that there I don't I don't, I don't really want to get into the sequels. I know that they have defenders, and I don't want to upset anyone. But I think this movie proves how hard it is to get the balance right because they only did it once, in my opinion. So I have a theory. Okay, so they used to work in the comic book industry prior, and they actually hired a few comic book artists to help with the storyboards. And I think because they had so much talent involved in actually creating the storyboards ahead of time, I think that made it so much easier for an entire cast and crew of this size with this kind of money to make this kind of movie because you have the actual shots like already on paper, but beautifully like drawn out. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, I mean, most, most Hollywood studios, like they do have like professional artists doing storyboards, but this came specifically from these incredibly talented, like comic book artists. Mm -hmm. And I think their background also in working with comics also helped because I don't know if you've ever seen the actual concept art by uh, Jeff Darrow. So if you don't know, for anyone listening, Jeff Darrow, he, he worked on a lot of like DC comics with um, Frank Miller, for example. He actually worked on Hard Boiled, which is like a huge influence and inspiration mm-hmm. on the Wachowskis, right? And so they were they were such a big, huge fan of Hard Boiled, the comic, not the movie. Also, the movie, which which I'll talk about eventually. But they hired him to do the actual concept art for the Matrix, and you can actually find it online. This guy used to have a Tumblr account. It was like amazing because he would post his artwork um, on his Tumblr account. And so I kind of feel like having that kind of like crew around that when you have this incredibly talented, like, you know, a bunch of like visual effects creators and like CGI, like magicians, right. And they can look at this artwork. It helps everyone sort of like, sort of like be on the same page and understand how like, cause they were creating some like groundbreaking visuals. Like we can talk about bullet time clearly. Right. Which to be fair, 
There was like examples of bullet time in the past, but they were heavily inspired by Michel Gondry for bullet time because he did a lot of like similar tactics and visual trickery in his music videos, but especially his, um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen his Heineken ad. No, no, sorry. It wasn't Heineken. It was a Smirnoff. So Michel Gondry did this commercial for Smirnoff and he essentially did bullet time before the Wachowskis did bullet time. We're talking about 1996, like three years prior. Um, anyhow, the point is, I think you're totally right, Simon, because I I don't hate the sequels like some people do. Um, I think, like, for example, we could talk about, like, maybe we'll talk about this in like future episodes, but, like the motorcycle chase sequence and like the second movie is incredible. Whips, whips, it's whips. amazing. Yeah. Um, but like overall, this is the only movie in the series that's like, I think solid from start to finish. Like there's maybe one thing I'll change. I would change if I could, which we'll talk about after the break. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, this movie is just solid. Like it's, it's so tight and, and it's, it's so interesting how like the actual story itself is as old as time itself. Like the idea of having a chosen one overall, the actual story it's been done a million times before and after, but never quite like the matrix. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. And, and to, to backtrack just a tiny bit and we're not, I mean, I know we're not going to get too deep into this, but the reloaded is a good movie, like from start to finish, not just the mo motorcycle chasing, but we'll get to that another time. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Like the, the idea of, of this sort of, of, of the one and um, there's, I, I, I guess this kind of falls into the whole monomyth idea, but yeah, it, it takes all of these aspects from from different cultures, but also it's it's this mash of all of these different, you know, seemingly contradictory. Uh, uh, you've got cyberpunk in here. You've got you know the the kung fu aspects of it, and then you've got you know again all of this philosophical stuff. And if someone just like before the Matrix was a thing, if someone just wrote all this out you know, and like gave you this pitch, you'd be like, this sounds like a mess, you know, like this, this yeah. is, there, there's no way that all of this is going to work in one movie. And to their credit, the Wachowski's credit, and so much of that, I think the success of it is due to their storyboards, but also due to like these, these directors, like they had this story and they had this aesthetic. They knew what this, what this film was going to be, look, feel like, it was so ingrained in them, you know. If you watch the the making of documentary on the on the Blu-ray or DVD or the bonus DVD that you had to buy separately originally, um, uh, you know, you could see them. The part of the one of the things they say is like with two directors. Part of the the, the great part of it is one can hold the sort of like camera and the other one can kind of act it out, you know, and, and show everyone what they're talking about. Um, and that's such a big part of it. But one of the things that I want to ask you guys about is it takes this this is a perfect storm type movie where again there's all of these disparate things and they all just coalesce to work for you know all of these different reasons but one of the big things is the casting as you mentioned before and keanu in this role but do we know the other two choices for neo and the wachowski's original choice wasn't one of them will smith well yeah, the original is will smith but they wanted johnny depp that's right oh, they wanted God, depp yeah. So I, I think Johnny Depp would have worked back then. This is 1999. I think he would have worked well in the part. I still like I'm a huge fan of Keanu Reeves. I've always been in love with this dude. I think he's one of my favorite actors. A mm -hmm. uh, huge fan of movies like Speed and, of course, John Wick. I love Keanu Reeves in this movie. Yeah. Will Smith, I think, would have worked. I think it would be 
kind of like weird. Though. It would be like, a, such a different movie though. Cause his tone is so different, you know? Yeah. His, his sense of humor is mm-hmm. his comic sensibility is so different. And um, I have to say not less, a lot less interesting to me in general. The reason why for me personally, like I'm trying to like discuss this movie today in 2022, sort of like putting myself in the shoes of me 22 years ago, watching this movie when I was way younger and the impact it had on me personally and making me just like fall in love with movies in a whole different way. Because, you know, I was this was that this was during a time when the Fantasia Film Festival here in Montreal was blowing up. Like, I think it was like year three or four Fantasia and Fantasia really introduced me to a lot of the martial arts movies, especially the ones starring Jet Li, Jackie Chan, the ones with fight choreography and or directed by Yu Wu Ping. And he, of course, got hired to work in this movie. And so the reason why I initially fell in love with this movie, it had nothing to do with the religion, with the, with the religious like subtext, the um, the philosophy, the Internet, because the Internet was still not really a big thing at the time. It, it, it didn't really have anything to do with the. Um, you know, the, the, the themes of like freedom and predetermination, fate versus choice and all that jazz, which we can talk about. The reason why I fell in love with this movie was just because of the Kung Fu, because you had all of the incredible martial arts fight sequences, that, fight sequences that you would see in Hong Kong films. But with this added layer of these incredible visual effects because of stuff like bullet time. And it blew my mind because it was kind of like you took everything I loved about John Woo movies, like movies like Hard Boiled. And then you took everything I loved about Jet Li movies and you found like the perfect way to mesh those two styles. And one of my favorite martial arts movies of all time is Fist of Legend. And the fight sequence in like, well, there's two fight scenes in this film, which are almost shot by shot, frame by frame, like two of the scenes, two of the fight scenes from Fist of Legend, to the point where if you freeze frame Keanu Reeves at one point in time, and you put a side by side comparison to Jet Li and Fist of Legend, you would think that it's the same movie, but a different actor. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so it's actually the martial arts that made me fall in love with this movie. And such a big part of that is the fact that you have, you know, these um, these Western, these American actors doing their own fight choreography, which was kind of a novel thing back then, doing this incredibly intricate fight choreography. You know, you have Lawrence Fishburne doing this. You have Carrie Ann Moss doing this. And you have Keanu Reeves doing all of this stuff. And of course, they have their stunt doubles that they're working with. But so much of it is them learning these moves and learning all of this, all of these, you know, all this this dance pretty much and it's it's incredible you know because I, I obviously watched the 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 making of um documentary a couple times and just mm-hmm. to to think like you have to remember every single one of those steps where you're going to be where you need to end up where your partner is going to be it's it is mind-boggling i will i will remind the audience at home that two of those americans are in fact canadians mm. please excuse me <laughs> And when you watch the documentary, they they do say, I think I think it took like about a year of preparation for them to actually be prepared to do all of these action scenes. Yeah, it makes sense. But you're you're completely right, because I cannot for the life of me remember a Hollywood film in which the big star or stars actually perform their own stunts. Usually they wouldn't. Um, but in, in this movie, it's not just Keanu. It's like you said, it's 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 Moss and it's also um, Fishburne. Like all three main actors perform their own stunts and it's absolutely incredible. And 
they of course used the wire work, you know, and that became like a big thing. And then like, I would see the, here's the thing. If you saw this movie in 1999, it was a game changer. Mm-hmm. But if you saw this movie for the first time, say like in 2022 or even like five years ago or 10 years ago, it wouldn't have the same sort of like effect because every single movie, TV show, cartoon, you name it has copied what this movie's done. Everything from the look of it, the cinematography, the lighting, bullet time i I feel like there's been a lot of movies that have tried even just like forget all the other things the matrix is also doing really well the really difficult thing that it's doing well is blending um hand-to-hand and gun fighting with special effects uh to create you know a new aesthetic um you know when there's i mean literally people are you know this the shang chi movie that just came out People were, it seemed like people were divided about how it handled this exact thing. And it's been like, you know, 22 years. So I, I watched that movie and my nephew was raving about it. And I watched the movie and I was like, have you seen The Matrix? Have you seen any of these Jet Li films? And he's like, no. I'm like, well, OK, that would explain it. Right. And it's like it's it's not a criticism. Like, I mean, he's a kid. Right. So like, it's fine. Like, I can understand his point of view. But like what people don't understand is that this movie, it's it takes like jujitsu, it takes Savati, it takes Kempo, it takes Taekwondo, it takes drunken boxing, it takes all these different forms of martial arts, like which are forms of art. Right. And it also takes the sort of like gun fu of John Woo action films and just finds this beautiful way to create these amazing action scenes which in which not like Michael Bay, where you can actually see the action, follow the action with these beautiful long tracking shots and slow motion and bullets flying in slow motion. And just like it's just it's poetry. It's like a ballet. I love it. It's it's essentially, you know, you were talking about the detailed how detailed the storyboards are and how long they had to develop these visual ideas. And it really made me realize like The Matrix in a way, it's essentially an animated film made in live action. Like that's, that's the level yeah. at the level of image manipulation and control that they are exerting here in a convincing holistic way which again is something that almost no one ever gets right like the only the this is this is like a level of execution that is on par in terms of the world building and how developed the aesthetic is with like the best in terms of production design of like Terry Gilliam like and it does and it does connect to uh, in my mind some of his stuff like, you know, 12 Monkeys has has some of the same um, kind of the janky electronics uh, that are everywhere in the in the quote unquote real world. Um, I don't know. This, I love the, the the design and look elements of the movie are so great. And that's before you even get to, you know, the obvious script and idea stuff I'm aching to talk about. Hey, did you say that because, you know, the the bit of trivia in which they asked the producer, Joel Silver, which, by the way, big shout out to Joel Silver for getting this movie made. But they mm-hmm. asked him to sit down and watch Ghost in a Shell. Do oh, you know I, did, I, I did not know this. No. OK, so in order to get this movie greenlit. They asked Joel Silver, who produced uh, The Assassin and Bound. So The Assassin was the first movie they wrote, which they sold. Who assassin directed The Assassin? Was yeah. It was Assassin. Who directed? I forget. Was it Rodriguez? No, no, no. no. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. So they didn't direct that, but then they got a chance to direct Bound. And then the point is they asked Joel Silver to sit down and watch Ghost in a Shell. 
And like, if you don't know, that's like one of the greatest anime movies ever made. And they're like, look, we want to make this movie, but live action. And so they needed him to watch the movie so he could understand their vision because they just weren't doing justice by trying to describe what they want to do to him. They needed him to actually see something similar because that movie, I mean, manga and anime in general were like huge inspirations on the Wachowskis. I mean, they even went on to go make Speed Racer, which, by the way, is an incredible awesome movie. fucking movie. We reviewed it. Go check our, fe- our feed. But I mean, even the opening of The Matrix, it's almost shot by shot the same as the opening of Ghost in the Shell. Uh, so there's there. And it's not just the opening. There's like six or seven scenes where you can take those scenes and put them side by side. And it's like. It's basically the animated film was a storyboard for those seven scenes. Like um, even the uh, the opening, you know, like the scroll, like the letters coming up and down. Speaking of uh, now that we're talking about this level of detail, I want to talk. I want to actually talk about the script and the other reasons that this movie is still uh, still blowing my mind. Um, the, I, I, I made a connection on this viewing. Uh, there's a, a great scene. One of my favorite scenes in the movie Um when Jay, when uh, Joe Pantoliano's cipher reveals his motivation for uh, his villainy, we actually get two totally different villains with two totally different motives, um, which I find fascinating. One person who wants to stay in the Matrix and the other person who desperately wants to get out. Mm. Brilliant construction. Anyway, um, Cypher is talking about how, look. I know this technically isn't real, but it's fucking tasty. And all I want is tasty shit. I just want to live in pig ignorance with my stuff. Um, and it, I was connecting this to there's this uh, asshole named Mark Andreessen. Uh, and he had this to say, someone asked him, are we too connected these days? And then he started talking about the metaverse. And this is what he said. Your question is a great example of what I call reality privilege. A small percent of people live in a, in a real world environment that is rich, even overflowing with glorious substance, beautiful settings, plentiful stimulation, and many fascinating people to talk to, to work with, and, and, and to date. These are also all the people who get to ask probing questions like yours. Everyone else, the vast majority of humanity, lacks reality privilege. Their online world is, or will be, immeasurably richer and more fulfilling than most of the physical and social environment around them in the quote-unquote real world. That's all I'm going to read from that. Um, but essentially there are people who, uh, are completely willing to throw meat space into a, in, into a blender in favor of, uh, you know, the metaverse. So, well, isn't the, that what basically Plato's cave is all about? It's about how like one person escapes and when they come back and they try to describe the sunlight and what it's like outside the cave, they just don't believe that person or can't visualize it because they never actually left the cave. And it's so hard for anyone to actually leave, like for them to actually step out. And that's the thing about the matrix itself. It's like none of these people can actually step out of the matrix. Like not even Neo himself can step out of the matrix. He's pulled out of the matrix with the help of Morpheus and Trinity and, you know, so on and so forth. This is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing to equipment, weapons, training simulations, anything we need. Right now, we're inside a computer program? Is it really so hard to believe? Your clothes are different, the plugs in your arms and head are gone. Your hair has changed. Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self. 
This... This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Yeah, and I mean, the with, with that analogy to the cave, I mean, with that, you know, that character coming back and saying, this is all what's going out, what's going on out there. He is essentially giving, bringing the idea that there's more out there and also giving these other people in the cave a choice, right? And the people in the cave choose, no, that's scary. This is all comfy. I like the shadows on the wall. This is, this is what I know. This is what I want to stick to, right? And so that is the sort of uh, uh, choice that's being uh, given to you. And, you know, what we get to later in the Matrix series is that, you know, the, the humans, the actual humans are not even allowed to make the choice. The choice has to be sort of like, you know, jolted out of uh, specific people, you know, to say, hey, here's the option. Here's the, here's the two pills, you know. And, uh, you know, that is, that is what is kind of, again, I don't want to get into the later, into the later mythology of it. But, um, but it's, so, it's so complex and that's what makes this movie so great. And there's so many different ways to read the movie, especially even if you've never seen the sequels, you can still read the movie in like a different, like I'll give you an example. Like you talk about choices. Everyone has a choice, obviously, including in this movie meaning like Morpheus, Trinity, Mouse, Tank, you name it, right? And like, so technically, like, it's like the Oracle said, nobody's really in control of their own lives. It's not about like predestination, determination, like fate, whatever. It's it's the idea that even if the Oracle makes a choice, her choice will sort of like affect Neo or Trinity. Like, so everyone's sort of like their life is mm-hmm. being decided by choices made by the people that surround them. And, and I think if I'm not mistaken, like in recent interviews, because, you know, what the the director said back in 1999 versus what they say now, it's like they, they open up a, a bit more now because of who they are and what they've become and the changes they've gone through in their life. But they basically go on to say that the main theme running through the film is the idea of freedom and, you know, is freedom even possible? And so, like, clearly there's a lot of clearly they have a lot to say about control because that's the idea of like the matrix but i remember when i first watched this movie simon uh, again 1999 opening night and the first conversation i had with my friend jerry who i used to work with at the movie theater the first thing i said to him was like okay so they're still in the matrix right and he's like what do you mean i'm like well dude like the movie ended and the dude is flying so like you don't you can't fly in real life so he's just it's a mate it's like they're still in the matrix it's like a simulation or like you know what i mean it's yeah. a matrix within the it, matrix it still exists. yeah yeah, they still exist. Like they didn't actually escape. It's just they they made them think that they escaped, but they're still stuck in the matrix. So that's the first thing I said when I finished watching the movie. We had this big, huge argument about it. And I remember, um, you know, this is when the internet started to become like a big thing. Back in the days when you used to like have to like disconnect your phone line to use the internet. <laughs> Hell yeah! So, like yeah. I'm looking at my notes and I don't know, this is such a widely discussed movie that I kind of want to dig out some less discussed aspects, maybe uh, one of which is idea, yeah. uh, one of which is something that just jumps out to me every fucking time I watch it, which is that goddamn the body horror in this movie is fucking gnarly. Espe- just everything that happens in the first act that involves Neo un- waking up, waking up is is horrifying. Hey, can I just go over my list of scenes then really quick? Yeah, go for it. I already mentioned the opening scene. We all agree it's fantastic. So then you cut to the second scene, which is follow the white rabbit. So that leads to the club scene. Neil meets Trinity for the first time. 
for the first time, he asks, what is the Matrix? Then we get to the fort. Now, keep in mind, this is scene after scene after scene. Iconic scene after iconic scene after iconic scene. Scene number four, the interrogation scene, the first interrogation scene. Agent Smith meets Neo, and that is when they inject him with the bug, with the bug, which therefore calls to mind someone like David Cronenberg. Yeah, body only horror. the first horrifying piece of body horror in this movie, right? Which then Simon cuts to scene five, the car ride from hell, in which they debug Neo. Again, a bit of body horror. So I totally agree with you. Like no one talks about that, and they must have been like huge fans of Videodrome because Videodrome has very similar themes and there's a, like the body horror is very similar. And you know, um, the first interrogation scene when he can no longer speak that visual effect and the actual visual of it also looks like what Brandon Cronenberg did for his first movie, antiviral. Um, the effects are so gnarly and the, it's, it's also funny because when you, you know, you reading the scenes out like that was the first time I realized that you could write out the bug from this movie and nothing would change. Like nothing about the plot would change, but you get them inserting the bug and you get them removing the bug and both are awful. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad it's there. Yeah, I think you're right because when they track them later in the movie, they don't track them through a bug. They track them because Cypher leaves his, uh, his, his phone opened yeah. in the trash can, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the difference. By the way, in 1999, everybody wanted that Nokia phone. It was like the <laughs> coolest thing. It was like that and the glasses. Well, the sunglasses. Uh, thank you. We have to talk about the aesthetic a bit <laughs> because um, this movie has such a specific idea of what it is to be and look cool. And it's I don't even know if it is cool is the thing. <laughs> it's like this movie is so committed to thinking that it's cool that I am convinced that it is, you know? And that's what that's why it's so cool. That's what cool is because because it's the confidence of it, right? And they are so confident in the aesthetic and everything else. And yes, that that's why it's cool because they're saying it's cool. Yeah, like if you saw someone walking around dressed like or uh, like uh, like Morpheus in real life, you might think he was an asshole or just a bouncer. But if you see him, you know, in uh, in this movie, everyone looks cool as hell. But what I like about the look, though is the actual cinematography because there's a lot of like you know there's a lot of um scenes that look like they're lifted from like a film noir you know in terms of like the dutch angles the shadows the uh the lighting but because it has that green hue and tint and also the blue hue and tint because if they're in the matrix it's green and if they're in the real world quote unquote real world it's blue and so i like the way the cinematographer sort of like created that contrast and that difference between the two worlds, uh, but it just looks like a great movie. Like um, there is a tactility, I think um, that's always there in this movie. And I, I, which is, I think both a product of when it was made, you know, this, I feel like the late nineties, you had some really interesting hybrids of um, old school, practical effects and digital effects. I'm thinking of also of like starship troopers uh, just a couple of years earlier. And to me, this is this is part of that hallowed era where, you know, people were folding stuff in kind of responsibly, I guess, is the maybe the boring way to say it. But I watched this movie, you know, 22 years later, and I still have no idea how they create some of the scenes. Like, for example, when the skyscraper explodes and you get you get the glass that shatters. The ripple I don't effect of it. Yeah. I don't understand how they did it. Like, it took them like three to four months to learn how to create 
that effect because they needed to like research glass. Like by the time this movie was finished filming, they they were like experts in like glass. <laughs> they knew they knew everything about glass because they need to research glass for like five months. It was insane. But like, but I don't know if this sounds corny, but the actual visual identity of the film is iconic and so influential. And like I said, it 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 takes inspiration from anime and from film noir but it has its own look like it has its own personality well and you're talking when you're talking about inspirations i think another reason this movie's aged so well is because nowadays i kind of feel like every blockbuster is also every other blockbuster you know all the all the parts are sort of interchangeable because it's all been done so often um, you were talking about all the types of different movies that the matrix evokes and it does do that. And it was maybe the, one of the first to do that, but everything is so well integrated that you don't mind that. For instance, you know, the Sentinels, et cetera, are all basically just Skynet again. Like we've, we've, been, we've literally been here before, but, but the, but the configuration is just different enough. And, and, uh, and, you know, the underpinnings are, are just, um, are just a little bit more elegant and everything is just kicked up a notch. So you don't mind that it's kind of a grab bag. Just really quick, Jeff Darrow, once again, he's the one who came up with the look for the creatures, the, uh, the battery farm, the Sentinels, the squiddies, the spaceship, like even the spaceship Neb, it was all his creation. He's the one to visualize it, put it on paper, and then they put it on the big screen. Let's talk about the robots, guys, the Sentinels and the the I forget the name of it. It's the picker that goes, you know, and picks out the, the it, it's it's not a squiddy. It's it's a something it's, it's a something picker because the Sentinels are the squid guys. And then there's oh, the, wait, you're talking about the bug that goes into his body. No, 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 no. There's another thing called the something picker. And this is the one that goes out and like like picks remember when when oh, when neo yeah, first yeah, yeah. wakes up from the goo and there's like the yeah. harvesting of like the bodies that's going on those things and so yeah so darrow so darrow does a, a lot of the actual root looks of that but my favorite sort of piece of information i've learned recently about all of this so john gata he's the visual effects supervisor of the movie he's the guy that sort of created this you know, iteration of bullet time. So he's talking about how they were, how they programmed the movement of all of these, uh, uh, of the, of the squiddies, you know, the sentinels and the picker and what they all are is because they are robots. And so they are of a sort of higher, you know, evolution and they're robotic. And so how do they convey that, uh, you know, in movement. And so all of the movements of all of those robots are sort of in patterns because patterns are a, are a high minded computeristic thing, but they make slight aberrations in those patterns. So they're not completely perfect. And that is what conveys a sort of biomechanic type thing. The fact that these are all machines, but there are these living machines at the same time. And when he said that, that just completely blew my mind. And that is just so indicative of the level of detail that they put into so so much of this movie dude okay is his name pronounced john gata i believe so am okay, i wrong about that, that dude yeah yeah no I, I don't know but that dude i'm telling you he must have been a huge fan of music videos at that point in time because not only was there michelle gondry doing like these incredible things for music videos but there was um what was his name again oh my god big time filmmaker now he did birth he did um john glazer oh, john glazer, glazer. John glazer. yes 
those those dudes and there was someone else i can't remember who did sabotage was it uh, spike uh, jones, spike jones yeah. so it was spike jones glazer and gondry those three dudes i feel like they watched their music videos and they took a lot of their like camera trickery and ideas and i'm not saying that they copy them i mean you know people in the business work on various projects maybe he worked with them i don't know but uh, i totally agree his work is incredible i mean the fact that he was able to actually bring bullet time to life is mm. like a feat because like i said gondry did something similar in that commercial but it's more like there's slow motion and then they pause the scene right so they pause the guy midair like the the way they developed bullet time in this movie was they just basically had the room surrounded by cameras still they, cameras yeah yeah and they took one frame from each oh, still camera so to actually create i, I a mean an image listen, which is incredible they created and uh, brought to life an effect so good they had to write an entire plot point about it in their in the latest sequel to incorporate the fact that there's been so much writing and discourse and people losing their minds about it that's how good it is well they they, they didn't use it in, in in the first two sequels because everybody else was use, using it and so they just like were annoyed so they decided to use different sort of like forms of like uh, stop motion and uh, slow motion for the the action sequences in part two and three like i don't remember there being bullet time yeah, I don't know if there was much bullet time uh, in two and three. I think you're right about that. But just going off of this, uh, how they are, how the how the Wachowskis and John Gaeta and then the whole team is creating this world and conveying these themes through filmmaking and visuals. So there's the there's the scene where Neo is he he's he's first going back into the Matrix with um, with Trinity and Morpheus, and they're in the car, right? they're in the car and they're just kind of having this calm chat and but you can see the windows going by and what they do is each different window because there's the shot of morpheus in the front there's a shot of trinity and then there's a shot of um of uh, neo and in the window in each in each character's part there is a different frame rate of video going on as the street scene is passing by and it is different from the frame rate of the scene that is taking place with all the dialogue and that just kind of shows that something isn't right with this world that something's a bit off and it is so subtle but again just so effective okay just to continue my list okay we're still within the first 45 <laughs> minutes of the movie okay scene number six neo meets morpheus for the first time that is when he delivers his famous speech the matrix is everywhere it's all around us even now it's in every room you can see it when you look out your window blah 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 and then you see like the reflection of Neo in his sunglasses. You hear the lightning and thunder outside. And then you get the famous, do you take the blue pill or do you take the red pill? Like that whole entire sequence, legendary, iconic. Then you cut to scene seven, Neo's rebirth, which by the way, I think that scene has the best track in the entire soundtrack. Cause I'm not a big fan of the soundtrack as a whole, but I think there's individual tracks, which are just incredible. That is like one scene where the music's amazing. And that is when we get the creature that you're referring to earlier on, um, which we still don't know the name of the creature, but whatever, the picker. And then it's incredible that Keanu Reeves actually lost 15 pounds, shaved his entire body, including his head, just to get that specific look for that scene. Talk about a dedicated actor. Then we get to the next scene, which is when we get introduced to the crew, which nobody talks about. 
because the entire cast is amazing. It's not just Keanu. It's not just Carrie Ann Moss. It's not just Lawrence Fishburne. I love the crew, Tank, Dozer, Switch, Cypher, Mouse, APAC. And then we finally get to the scene, What is the Matrix, in which Neil enters the construct. He enters the loading program. And then that's when he had, you know, like he's in the room and it's all completely white. Mm-hmm. And and then we get the backstory of the war between man and machine, which I could not help but think of something like the Terminator. But I mean, that entire like sequence, the way it's constructed, the special effects, the visuals, the creature design, the imagination that went into creating that scene and the way they cut back and forth between the the world like how it actually looks like to the white room to them sitting in a couch like i just love the editing i love the camera placement i love the lighting and i love just the performance by lawrence fishburne and just like again the red pill and blue pill like that scene i mean scenes like that how often have we seen movies tv shows cartoons video games you name it that have straight up ripped off that scene or parody that scene. It's like, this is one of the most influential films ever. By the way, I'm still in the first 45 minutes. Well, <laughs> speaking of being on the first 45 minutes, we're at our 45 minute mark. And that means I'm sorry. I'm sorry, folks. We're taking a break and we're coming back with our five questions. Uh, we'll be right back. Do you believe in fate? Yeah. No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. You're back on Sorted Cinema. Kent, uh, you must answer one of our hardest, uh, I think, iterations of this question ever. Uh, What is your favorite scene in The Matrix? One scene only. Okay, I think uh, my favorite scene is one that we were just kind of t- just speaking about is um, when Neo first wakes up in from the Matrix in the real world in the goo looks at, looks out and we see this entire vast space of just these 
these body batteries being harvested by these enormous machines. I had never seen anything like it. I kind of still think I haven't seen anything like it since. And just, you know, having that visual convey what the world is and just the idea of everything so clearly, it it's it's the thing that sticks out in my mind most. I just want to add that scene is incredible also just because of the way they release him. Like it is like he's actually like someone, a machine is actually giving birth to him mm-hmm. and the the liquids and it's gooey and it's so, oh, it's creepy and oh God, love it. It's fucking nasty, man. It's amazing. <laughs> it is really gnarly. Uh, yeah, I, I, that was on my short list as well, but Ricky, what are you going with? I was going to mention one quick scene, which is still within the first 45 minutes of the movie. This is like the back to back to back iconic scenes. And it's when he finally gets to learn Kung Fu for the first time. And there's the whole line. What are you waiting for? You're faster. You know, don't think you are. No, you are. Come on. Stop trying to hit me and hit me. Yeah. The Morpheus versus um neo neo fight sequence is like again iconic and that's when we hit the 45 50 minute mark of the movie again the first 45 minutes 50 minutes of the movie like i can't remember any movie in recent memory where like the first 50 minutes of the movie is iconic from start like like it's just incredible but my favorite scene simon my favorite scene (laughs) okay Oh, I love this scene. You're going to think I'm crazy. It might be a surprise, but it's a scene in which they take inspiration from spaghetti Westerns and we get the face off between Neo and Agent Smith yeah. in, in the train, the, in the Metro, in the subway. Oh. And it's like a throwback to the classic Sergio Leone films that we love, like Once Upon a Time in the West or The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. And, you know, the subway is basically the Matrix's version of the streets of some old West town. Mm. And you get the newspapers. Yes, that's like like windy. Oh, God. I love it. I love love a windy train station underground. Again, it's a cartoon. (laughs) It is a cartoon. And I mean, but dude, like in the in the best way possible. But, you know, like the stand, the posture, the camera shots, the close up of his hand, the close up of their eyes. Like it's it's a it's a classic Sergio Sergio Leone standoff and and it's not just about that it's about what follows that it's the fight sequence it it's an incredible fight scene great choreography great martial arts skills i mean it's 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 incredible like you know we talk a lot about like action fight scenes on this podcast we, we we've reviewed movies like universal soldier and the raid and i think we've done some jet lee movies in the past but this is like one of the greatest hand-to-hand combat fight sequences in any movie ever ever and of course it has the edge because of the special effects but it's the whole construction of the scene from the set to the lighting to the actual performances to the hand-to-hand combat the martial arts it's incredible uh, since we we haven't really talked about him much yet did did hugo weaving also like learn all the kung fu in the world as keanu reeves did they had to <laughs> damn yeah. uh yeah, yeah he doesn't get enough uh enough love speaking of which um the scene i'm gonna pick that i don't think anyone has mentioned yet um that this is the one that just really stopped me in my tracks on on this watch anyway and it's the um, the showdown of sorts uh, between Agent Smith and a different character, Morpheus, um, when um, Morpheus is, is strapped to the mental torture device, Lawrence Fishburne to, doing some incredible uh, over-the-top acting of physical and mental anguish that I just love. But on top of that, 
Hugo Weaving giving one of, I think, the great scenery chewing villain monologues 100%, of yeah. any movie, period. Like, he is so good. His, his, he really just, there's something about him that so beautifully conveys the, the, his sheer contempt for the concept of humanity in a way that I really can't think of a lot of other villains that have ever really done it. Um, and I just, I love how in a way, like, I mean, his, his rationale is so perfectly, it, it's so elegant for that character. And um, I don't know. I just, he, weaving doesn't get enough credit for just how, how wonderfully slimy and uh, li- li- genuinely inhuman his villainy is. It's such a great, uh, and we're talking about pulling influences. It's such a great sort of, bond villain esque like you know humanity is is terrible and i'm gonna i'm the cure i'm gonna fix it and the other thing that is kind of bond villain-esque about it is that he has this sort of elitism to his point of view but in his in his voice as well you know when he's when he's talking about humans and he's talking to morpheus he's he's just like i can't believe i have to these these things have to even be in my brain and i have to even be talking about them i'm so above them it's disgusting yes. you know and that uh, that is such a, a strong part of it i feel like i'm glad so, you mentioned bond villain because the other really bond villain detail is when he gets all up in morpheus's face and is like wiping his sweat up in his oh, nose he's like this is disgusting i love it <laughs> So interrogation scene number two, this scene, that is also on my list of iconic scenes. And that is also when we get the monologue in which Agent Smith talks about the human race being like a virus, like human beings are a disease, a cancer of the planet. The performance is amazing. But I also think that that is the scene in which we do get a hint that Agent Smith isn't exactly what he appears to be and that he I mean he says it himself like he wants out like he like neil wants out it's just that he wants out of something different yeah i mean they're they're two sort of sides of the same coin type character and again we learn that in the we learn that a little bit more in the uh in the sequels and all that it's like the uh the theme of duality right yeah and that's all i mean yeah they really push that over the course of the sequels which we can maybe talk about some other time i'm surprised nobody chose which is also on the list and it's the very last scene on my list i swear to god um the foot chase because keanu reeves has now been in two movies with two of the best foot chases in the history of cinema and the foot chase towards the end of the film is mm. absolutely incredible. It's it's got that beautiful like um, steady cam, and they have to follow Keanu Reeves as he's running through the apartment complex. Meanwhile, Agent Smith keeps on morphing and teleporting in between people in order to catch up to Keanu Reeves, and and then it ends by Keanu Reeves's character Neo actually getting shot, which was kind of like a shocker at the time. So I I think that foot chase is uh, is it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I assume the other one you mean is a point break. Uh, all right, moving on. If you could change, Kent, if you could change one thing about the Matrix, what would it be? Right. What a difficult question. What would you possibly change in this near perfect movie? So the one thing I landed on is uh, something that the Wachowskis originally wanted and I thought would have been a great, as groundbreaking this movie was, uh, another thing that would have sort of made it ahead of its time uh, is that the character of switch. Okay. Do we know this, that originally what the Wachowskis wanted is in the real world and in the matrix, they wanted two different 
actors to play the character of Switch, hence the name Switch. One, I believe uh. in the Matrix was going to be male presenting and the other in the real world would be female presenting. But I think when they brought that to the to Warner Brothers, they were like, no, 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 no. That's, that's too much. We can't have that right now. It's 1999. People aren't ready for that. But I think that would have been great and brilliant and worked so well and fit in so perfectly with their sort of ethos and their idea of, you know, the body being this sort of meat prison and what is assigned to you is not necessarily what you really are. And uh, yeah. that's the one thing I would change. I, I just want to note that Warner Brothers did not flinch when they pr- the, when they were presented with storyboards where babies are being fed liquefied human meat. Uh, but they didn't want but a, a character who switched gender presentation was a bridge too far. Hold on a second. We don't know that. I I, I was I understood that they just thought it would be too confusing for audiences. That that could be the case. But either way, I would have wanted it back. I have a question now that you brought up the baby that's being fed the liquefied uh, humans, and maybe you guys can have an answer for it because I don't know it. Where do the babies come from? I know where they come from. You know, in our world, but where does that baby come from? Presumably, they also have like breeding farms. Do you think that's what it is? But do they wake the do they wake the people up to like make them have sex? Like probably not. It's probably all. <laughs> I assume it's all guided by robots. Sure. Okay, I'll buy that. Uh, they do explain it in the movie because I was thinking the exact same thing rewatching it, and there is an explanation. They have a okay. system. They have a stork based system. I think. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, Ricky, what would you change about the Matrix nineteen ninety nine? Okay, so hear me out. So there's a scene in which Neo and Trinity raid the apartment complex towards the end of the movie, right before they hop into a helicopter. And they just straight up kill everybody. Like, they kill everybody. <laughs> I and thought from about my, <laughs> From my understanding, within the Matrix, if you die, you will die in real life. So even if these people don't realize they're in a Matrix, those people would still die. And even if like their life is meaningless because they're just stuck in some like fucking pod somewhere. They're still killing all of these dudes, like all of these cops, all of these innocent people. And then it leads them upstairs where they hop into the helicopter. And then he starts mowing down all of the agents. But Morpheus is in the middle of the room. And I'm like, well, what if one of those hundred million bullets hits Morpheus? So I understand that they wanted like, you know, this big action sequence and bullets flying left and right, like a John Woo film, but it didn't make sense to me to this. It still does not make sense to me to this day that they would kill innocent people and they would jeopardize the life of Morpheus, who they are trying to save. You're talking about the government lobby scene with the with the big gun battle. So on the commentary, John Gata talks about that scene and those are not actually real people. Those are all computer programs. He says this and he says, this is why we can get away with it. I mean, you could like the Oracle is a program, right? Like if yeah. the Oracle is a program, then they can be programs. I, I totally agree. But it, it is like when you're watching a movie, like a movie doesn't actually support that argument. There's no proof or there's no even real indication. I don't think you I, I think it's easier to infer it once you've seen the sequels and you realize oh, there's like other programs. Floating yeah, around. So sorry, you asked me what I would change. And I told you my problem with that scene, but yeah. I didn't tell you what I would change. So all I would change. And this is like like. Whenever we do these questions on the podcast, I always try to find the easiest way to change something without actually really changing it. Mm. I would just add a line of dialogue that explains something like, yeah, they are programmed. Sure, sure. So that would explain to the audience, you still get the exact same scene. So you don't have to take it out of the movie. You don't have to remove anything or change anything, really. It's about adding something. But it makes a world of difference. Sure. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that at all. Actually, that's a, that's a good call, and I it, that that did jump out to me also, and I I think it it stands out even more when you remember that like you know this was the era of um uh this was an era of, of hysteria over gun violence in movies, um and it's just funny that there's this huge sequence where they where there's so much more overkill than they really needed, anyway. Um, the thing that I, that stood out to me as, and I'm sorry, this isn't as precise as yours, Ricky. Um, but on this rewatch, I know that people like, one of the things that people like about the Wachowskis is that they're, um, you know, they have, they're, they're quite, they're sentimentalists. They're, they're, you know, they're, they've, they've got gooey sentimentality all over like most of their movies, if not all of them. Um, but I still kind of think that the love story aspect of this movie is pretty underbaked. And that's mostly because I think Trinity is kind of underserved as a character, despite how great Carrie Ann Moss's performance is. Um, and I don't actually think that changes that much in the other movies either. Although actually the, the one of the few ways that revolutions, um, sorry, reloaded Im- uh, actually improves on this movie, I think is that their relationship feels a bit more real um whereas here it's all very like i don't know it's it feels like it's out of uh, imported from a fairy tale basically i think that's totally fair i think you're absolutely right about that yeah um i see i was waiting for you to mention the kiss because i knew you were going to bring up the love story yeah and what do you what do you have to say about it (laughs) so (laughs) would you just change the love story like i think it i think it just needs uh, i think it just needs a little bit more it needs a little bit it needs i don't know i think a lot of the movie is just brimming with specificity and i think that's what if what they the, actually had sex in the movie instead of just a kiss i mean i don't know that i don't know if that's an improvement or not i just <laughs> like i don't know they, i just like they do in the second one which is yeah, why you exactly believe it. uh yeah and, and and the sex scene in the second movie is great yeah um, actually and you, but you and you but you can't lose the love story in the first one that is the whole reason that this one is different from all of the other ones. Again, I know we don't learn that until later, but you know that it's just yeah, so integral I, I, to the, to I, the character. Yeah, and again, I don't think I don't think you can lose it, but I think that you do. It does need a little bit more scaffolding or something. You see, I I don't. I mean, I know that this is what you would change. I don't agree because I don't see a problem with the love story because it is her who is really in love with him. He meets her for the first time. He's starting to fall in love with her. He's also never been around people, much less a beautiful lady. So it would make sense that he would form um, a bond with anyone, especially her. Right. And she has been thinking about and imagining him and, you know, whatever for God knows how long, because he's been the one, he's the one that everyone has talked about and who she imagines to be this great person, the savior who's going to save everybody. So it would make sense for her to have already decided that she's going to fall in love with this dude, especially because the Oracle tells her, I mean, that's the thing again. Well, that's the thing about the Oracle, right? Like the Oracle says things and does it actually happen because she can see into the future or just because, she tells them like, "Hey, watch out for the, for example, vase." And then he knocks down the vase because the oracle kind of like. Says or maybe something. she's just seen Keanu Reeves and said, "Well, obviously she's going to meet him," and then it's over. 
He's also very good looking in this movie. By that's what I'm saying. I forgot how good looking he is. I mean, he's good looking now, but he was like really good looking back in 1999. If we're having fun with these justifications, there's also this idea that Neo and Trinity have been communicating like over like whatever their computer chat text is before, right? Because he's they've you know they've been talking. Maybe they've had some cyber sex. You don't know. Maybe they've gotten to know each other. We're having that's fun what with the, this, right? Okay, so that's what I would change. I would open with 35 minutes of uh, cyber sex. Yes, A-S-L. I know we're joking around, but you bring up a good point. There's a certain amount of time that passes from the moment they save them to when they, like, for example, um, uh, go to see the Oracle. Because when he wakes up, they even say, like, he cannot even walk because he's never actually used his muscles. So there's a time lapse. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we should move on to our next question, which is, again, I'll start with you, Kent. Who is the MVP of this film? Everyone seems like they're getting kind of multiple answers on these questions. And so I'm going to slip in my, my <laughs> sort of halfway tie with this. Originally, I was going to go with Hugo Weaving because this is like, you know, America's and North America's rather introduction to Hugo Weaving, like in a big way. I know he was in, you know, Priscilla Queen of the Desert and things like that. But like, this is like Hugo Weaving's like big breakout. Right. But I think my MVP of this movie has to be Joey Pants, you know, Playing the Hell cynic, yes. playing the Han Solo type character that's like, what is all this, you know? And and then having that whole twist with him, he sells everything so well. He gets to be the only one that is like kind of like just a normal like Jersey guy in this whole like weird world, right? Like no one else has that kind of like character or personality to them, but he gets to have it. No one questions it. No one like in the world of the, in the real world or in the audience is like, oh, this guy seems like a little off tone. No, because it's great and it works and it's so much fun and it adds like energy and you need the cynic in there because you have this crazy world going around you and uh, of course the whole steak scene is uh, he just pulls off with a plum and then when he's also like on top of this uh, of like not the sleeping people but the knocked out people when they're in the matrix and he's like monologuing to them it's great he's my mvp uh yeah if only he if only he'd started his monologue by unplugging the main characters he would have had a much better time <laughs> anyway uh yeah i mean shout out to joey pants shout out to uh, joey pants He's, I mean, I, I also just love that the Wachowskis brought him along from Bound. Mm-hmm. Like they just, they kept him around because he's also just, if got folks at home, if you have not seen Bound, that is one humdinger of a movie. Uh, and um, Joey Pants also excellent there. Man, you know, when I first saw Bound, I watched it back to back with Shallow Grave. What an amazing double feature. Oh, man. Yeah. That was a good time for uh, movies for grownups. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we've barely we've we've been talking around him all, all, all podcasts. So let let's talk about Keanu, folks. Sure. Um, I mean, at this is he point, your MVP. Yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, is there anything this boy can't do? I mean, he knows kung fu. He's done some uh, some really. Uh, excellent work in small movies he's done excellent work in huge movies uh he's played smart people and stupid people and uh handsome people and fucked up people um and he's been mysteriously great at all of it even though there was a strange mysterious period when um, most people thought he couldn't act which i think in retrospect is bizarre um apparently this happened again when cyberpunk came out according to tim rogers which again bizarre people continue to doubt him i don't know why well, I think he was miscast in a few films, and I think that you could put anybody in this movie and they would 
be perceived as not being able to act well because they would be miscast. Like he doesn't work well in Dracula. I'm sorry. Uh, I love the guy, but it's just not a good fit for him. I am going to agree with you, Simon. I don't think anyone in 1999 would have been able to like foresee this movie being such a huge hit, especially if it's starring Keanu Reeves, because yeah, he was in speed, but you know, still it was like he was in Johnny Mnemonic and that didn't really do very well for him. Right. Like if you look at the most recent film, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like that movie centers more on Trinity. And I still don't think that movie is as good as this movie, because I think that there's just something about Keanu Reeves. He's so charismatic and he is the heart of the movie. He's the soul of the movie. He is the star of the movie. And I think it was like a blessing for the Wachowskis that for whatever reason, Will Smith did not act in the film and Johnny Depp did not star in the movie because I think Keanu Reeves was born to play Neo. I think out of all of the movies he starred in from Bill and Ted to John Wick to you name it, I think this is the role he will be remembered for the most. And I don't know. He's to me, like he's the reason why the movie works. Yeah. It's hard to argue with, you know, none of us want to think about what Keanu's, you know, obituary is going to be, but that's always the sort of like question that you have to ask about actors, celebrities, things like that. Like what is going to be the first line of your obituary? Like what is going to be the thing, the first thing you remember it for? And, you know, as big as so many of these movies he's been in are, including this John Wick series, which we got because of the matrix, because they're directed by the the stunt people from the matrix is it's gotta be, it's gotta be Neo because this, again, this movie, as we said at the beginning of this episode is, is just such a, it has such a huge cultural impact and he is the central character for that. And so much of why this movie works. So I think you're hundred percent right. Well, I think it's because what we have here is we have this incredible Hollywood action film that really loves to dive deep into philosophy, religion, and these huge themes about like freedom and control and reality and you know so on so forth and this was also a movie that came out like right before y2k which was on everybody's mind and the internet was becoming a big thing and and it's it's like a dark movie like it's not exactly like a bright fun hollywood film i mean the actual film itself, like, yeah, there's these amazing action scenes, but it's really dark and twisted. And almost everybody dies in the movie, including the main character who technically does die. But we just care so much for Neo. We care about this character. And that might seem cheesy, but it's true. Like the movie has so much heart because of Keanu Reeves, because he's such a likable person to the point where someone snaps a photo of him sitting on a bench and it becomes this, phenomenon like it goes viral on the internet and everyone once again remembers why Keanu Reeves is so amazing because one simple photo of this dude sitting on a bench and everyone falls in love with and by by the way he was he was asked about that recently and apparently he was he just like wanted a sandwich he was just hungry that's what he said he was literally just hungry (laughs) and I mean Uh, yeah go ahead uh, sorry the the last thing I was gonna say is just the thing I really was picked up on this viewing and it, it's so on display in the uh, in the Kung Fu sequence with uh, Lawrence Fishburne. It's just obviously the physicality of of what he's doing is amazing. But I just I love his face acting while he's fighting. <laughs> he's got great 
face acting while fighting. That's not easy, folks. So does Carrie Ann Moss. And like the opening scene when she like kicks the guy in the in the forehead, like it's like, oh, my God, it's, it's she's just incredible. I, I've always wanted to see her versus uh, Keanu Reeves in a fight scene in oh, the Matrix movie. Uh, yeah, we, I obviously I need to I need to give a shout out to Carrie Ann Moss uh, because I didn't I didn't even know uh, what you were saying earlier, uh, Ricky, about the opening. But um, she's also just amazing to watch. And I, I really do wish the movie gave her a little bit more to do quick. Howard Hawks test, a.k.a. does this does this film, The Matrix 1999, contain three great scenes and no bad ones? And I got to say, fellas, I don't remember any bad scenes in this movie. Well, if you do not remember any bad scenes and I just listed 12 great scenes within the first 45 minutes of the movie. I think <laughs> I we're think good. It passes the Howard Hawks I think, test. I think we're good. For anyone who doesn't know, Howard Hawks once said, and some people argue it was Jean-Luc Godard, but a great movie consists of three great scenes, like great scenes and no bad scenes. I'm just going to start calling it the Paul Verhoeven test just because I, I want to give him more shout outs. Certainly passes the the Godard test because what did Godard say? All you need for a movie is a girl and a gun. This Got has a shitloads of both of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has a girl with a gun. Yep. There you go. That's synthesis, baby. Uh, all right, so that was a quick one. Then we all agree. <laughs> uh, good. I like I like when that one's short. Um, I guess my my closing question will be specific to this uh, to this movie. Um. Kent, where where do you, where do you see the this movie's place in history now that there's been not one but three sequels? Do you feel like its its reputation has changed at all as a result? Uh, I think its reputation. I don't think so. I don't think its reputation as a movie has changed or really will ever change as this. You know, again, I keep using the phrase epochal like event in, in cinema history because that's what it is but what it, the other thing that's so interesting about it is that what's going to change is how and i, I don't want to get too deep into this but how it's it's themes it's visuals it's message is used and how people appropriate that and that is how these that's how any pieces of culture sort of go on in and and live and have second third fourth lives is how universal they can be and how much they can be used by um you know future generations and things like that and unfortunately so much of this of the you know of the themes and iconography are are being used by you know not great people right now uh to say the least but i think that this is going to continue to happen and people will still continue to go back to this movie because it's also just a movie that everyone knows and you need these sort of monoculture things to pull from so that everyone kind of knows what you're talking about as shorthand. So I see this movie keeping its sort of place in the pantheon, in the canon, but also continuing to have all of these other lives that were never really initially intended for it. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I, I, I asked the question knowing full well that to me the answer is like, I think the movie stands uh, beautifully on its own. Um, I think that having seen all of the sequels to me, they kind of function. I mean, I know again, the movies have to def have defenders and some people probably even like them better. Um, but uh, you know, to me, I always think of them as like expansion packs for the matrix that are totally optional for me to even think about. Um, whereas the matrix itself is just like a, such a, a lovely self-contained, uh, universe that I can just think on uh, of on its own terms. 
I think what makes this movie especially interesting 22 years later and, and fast forward another 22 years, it's how people view and talk about it. Like when this movie came out, a lot of the film discourse was about the visual effects, the groundbreaking effects, bullet time, and you know the fact that it became this big, huge box office hit starring Keanu Reeves. But I feel like 22 years later, now people are looking at what the internet is now and social media and TikTok and Facebook, whatever it's becoming like meta, I don't know, um, and virtual reality and video games and the way we spend so much of our life in front of a computer and how people view this movie now. And I think in 22 years from now, it's going to be like we're going to have a whole different conversation about how this movie sort of like is more relevant in 22 years than it was in like 1999, if that makes any sense. So it's one of those movies that's going to stand the test of time because I think a lot of the the things that they discuss, the themes that are addressed in the movie are first of all universal and will be here for like ever as long as a human, mankind roams this planet. Yeah. Um, but also I think that as a movie, it's just a solid film from start to finish and any movie buff, be it now or 50 years from now, We'll be able to watch and appreciate this movie just like we can watch and appreciate something like Double Indemnity or, you know, anything from Hitchcock that was made like 60, 70 years ago. Because a good movie is a good movie. A great movie is a great movie. This is also a movie that stands the test of time. I, I have to say, not only does it stand the test of time, but revisiting this movie in early 2022, um, I have to say, in certain senses, it even um, maybe even hits a little harder in an era where people are like really you know there's all this talk all these um sort of heavy monologues in the film about questioning reality and thinking about your choices and opting into things or opting out of things and this sounds an awful lot like the discussions i hear about you know uh, about labor and about uh, all kinds of things in our society today uh and i don't know i just th- those those scenes have i don't think they've not only have they not they haven't lost relevance. They feel relevant and like, a, and, and alive in a whole new way uh, that I just found an absolute blast to watch. Yeah. I and I think, I think, yeah. And going off what Simon was saying, I think as long as there's going to be, you know, things like capitalism and hierarchical structures that, you know, use people as constituent parts and cogs and things like that. Yeah. Then this is going to be a message that will resonate, you know, un- until those things change, evolve or are done, you know? Yeah. I, I got to say, I'm really disappointed in Simon today. Why? I thought the last question was going to be, would you choose the red pill or the blue pill? Oh, shit. Oh, I mean, obviously the blue pill. Come on. So you just want to live in denial? Ignorance is bliss? Well, I'm, I've been trying the opposite lately, and I'm fucking miserable. I got to tell you. <laughs> I feel like it makes no difference at this point in time. I'm stuck <laughs> in my home because of the damn pandemic for like ever. There's nowhere to go. Might as well take the damn blue. It's the blue pill, right? Yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. There you go. Strap into the metaverse, baby. All right. Uh, that's enough out of us. Uh, Kent, where can folks find you online? You can find me at this great little website uh, called Cell Magazine, till.goomstop.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KW underscore HC. Uh, and really, that's you can just look for me there. I'm not on anything else. So I'll see you guys there. Excellent. Uh, Ricky, where can people find you and the podcast online? Okay. So sortedcinema.com is always the go-to URL. It will bring you to the podcast. If you ever get lost, just follow the white rabbit, sortedcinema.com. But we actually moved the podcast from Goomba Stomp to Tilt Magazine. So if you don't know, 
Tilt Magazine is a sister site to Goomba Stomp, but because Goomba Stomp is going to be focusing just on video games moving forward, including, by the way, there's this great article in the Matrix video game, which you should go read on Goomba Stomp. It's like one of our most popular articles this year. But we've moved and shifted all of the Sword of Cinema podcast over to TiltMagazine.net. You can also just go to SwordedCinema.com. It will redirect you to the archive. Uh, you can listen to the podcast on YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon. It is everywhere online. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sorted Cinema. And I found the piece of trivia I wanted to read earlier on. The most interesting piece of trivia that nobody talks about. <laughs> so the title scroll. Mm. So the title scroll was sort of like a recreation of the title scroll at the opening of Ghost in the Shell. But the person who created the, the the actual like typeface and the scroll itself, Simon White White Whiteley, I think is his name. So this dude Simon got the inspiration from his wife, who was cooking some sort of like sushi meal, and so the entire code is made out of Japanese sushi recipes, and it was his idea to actually use that tint of like green because remember back in the days like the internet had that very like neon green for some yeah, reason yeah. which was terrible and he actually won the award that year for the best in film typography so wow you know people don't realize how hard it is to make a movie and how much work goes into a movie like even a title scroll would take like forever to make like this movie like took over a year to create uh, it's a good one, folks. If you'd like to know why, I suggest you, you rewind about 84 <laughs> minutes and uh, you'll hear us talk about it again. Um, you can't really find me online unless you want to follow uh, the only Twitter account I run, which is the Ackerman Year Twitter account, uh, which really only tweets out the podcast and one screenshot per month. Uh, so it's not for Has Chantel that. Ackerman ever made any movies with uh, Canadian actors? Has Chantal Ackerman made it? Uh, I'm, I'm sure that she did at some point, but uh, I, nothing, nothing, nothing rings a bell right now. Why? Just want to know how much about Chantal Ackerman you know. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Look, I'm not the expert. Kate is. People are listening for Kate, not me. I'm just, I'm just the humble host. Anyway, uh, that's it for me. And uh, good goodness, uh, Kent, thank you for joining us. And next week, we'll be talking about some other junk. Uh, we haven't figured out what yet, but I'm excited to find out. And so should you be. Bye-bye now. Thanks for the drink. Sweet dreams. Do we have a deal? Mr. Reagan. You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal. I don't want to remember nothing. Nothing. You understand? And I want to be rich. You know, 
someone important, like an actor. Whatever you want, Mr. Regan. Okay. I get my body back in a power plant. Reinsert me into the Matrix. I'll get you what you want. Access codes to the Zion mainframe. No, I told you I don't know them. I can get you the man who does. Morpheus.